Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to the new decade, 2020. Hope everyone survived uh, New Year's Eve. I know we had a terrible storm here, but uh, we were still able to celebrate with family and had a great time. So we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in our podcast last week about urine drug screening and dig deeper into how we actually do this. I also want to share with you some really exciting news uh, that's going to happen in the next couple of months. I was able to uh, get an interview from the uh, co-chairs of the Canadian Pain Task Force. So we're going to talk about what the national strategy will be going forward for chronic pain and patients who are living with pain in the country. I'm really excited to bring you that, as well as to talk with Dr. Mike Allen and his crew from the Peer Simplified Guidelines. Uh, They work out of Alberta, and they are doing so much work, uh, just amazing work that we should all be uh, in awe. I know that I am. I'm just so impressed at what they've been doing. And so Dr. Mike Allen and Christina Kronoski, hopefully I'm saying that right, So we're going to bring that in the new year. So stay in touch. And uh, if you have any great questions that you can share that you'd like me to ask these amazing people, please uh, forward them to me on our podcast, uh, on our paintalk.ca, as well as Twitter and uh, Facebook. And we'll post all those links uh, on our webpage. So I just want to reinforce that uh, we're going to talk about uh, urine drug monitoring. So the, there are three ways of monitoring or, or screening urines. One is the bedside or the preliminary testing, which is the point of care testing or the immunoassay. So the immunoassay is really the screening test. The point of care is just how we can do it. So we can do it in the office or we can do it in the lab. And then the confirmatory test is the gas chromatography or mass spectrometry. So we're going to dig into immunoassay right now. So it's often referred to as the urine drug screening. So this is the screening test. And it is the initial evaluation that we do when we see a urine and we're screening. So if I'm ordering a urine drug screening in my emergency department, it is the immunoassay that is going to come to me. So I need to know what my uh, lab uses We do sometimes do point-of-care testing in our department, which can be very helpful. I often use the immunoassays that come from our opiate recovery program, especially if it's a high-risk patient, because it includes oxycodone, which is a very common opioid that is misused in our community. However, we do not have hydromorphone, which is also a very common uh, opioid. So I need to understand that, but we are going to talk about uh, opioids in general. So it's usually very quick. It's relatively inexpensive, although it can get very pricey depending on what you want that urine drug screening to tell you. It has very, very high sensitivity, but it lacks specificity. What happens is it overdiagnoses. So you see a lot of false positives. So that's why you need to step back. And what we're going to do is talk about why that happens. So what the immunoassay does is it uses antibodies to detect the presence of a selected drug and or the metabolites of that particular drug based on what we describe as a cutoff threshold. So this is usually predetermined. We'll talk about that. But that threshold can vary considerably depending on the type of test you're using. But it also varies in the confirmatory testing as well. Typically, if you're testing in the um, workplace, often those thresholds are a lot higher than what I would use in the clinical setting. 
So a positive test usually indicates that there's a class or a class of drug rather than a specific drug, even though it may give a positive for a specific drug. So that's kind of confusing. But when you're seeing a positive amphetamine screen, and amphetamines are really bad for, uh, and there's a number of reasons why, but really bad for a lot of false positives. Most immunoassays in your lab will include the Federal 5, and just to reinforce what those were, those were cocaine, marijuana, basic opiates, PCP, and amphetamines. At our hospital, we do a 10-panel immunoassay, and what we add to that immunoassay includes benzodiazepines, methadone, barbiturate, morphine, and LSD. You need to know what's in your lab, uh, and you need to know what your lab is testing. Really important. The challenges with immunoassays, we've already mentioned one, is that it's got a very, very high sensitivity and a very, very low specificity. So you get a lot of false positives. The challenges really are around these thresholds. So anything that falls below that threshold point that is set, that's predetermined by the immunoassay will come back negative, even though that substance may still be there. Anything above that threshold, it's going to read positive. And uh, But it may not be specific to the substance or the drug that you're concerned about. The other challenge is something called cross-reactivity, and we'll dig into that, as well as something called detection times. So the threshold we did talk about, and I'll give you an example of something like um, hydromorphone. So if you're using a screening test that will test for hydromorphone, Typically, that threshold uh, cutoff would be about three micrometers per milliliter. Um, but if you're using a confirmation test, it's much lower. So it's, it's more likely to pick it up, and it's at 100. Cocaine is another one. So typically, with your screening test, 150 would be your cutoff threshold, whereas in the confirmatory test or the gas chromatography, it would be at 100. So it's more likely to pick it up in the confirmatory test may not likely pick it up in the screening, depending on how much is in the, the, the individual system. So we are, the other thing that's really important about understanding about thresholds in immunoassays, so we're coming back to immunoassays, is that it is established for the adult population. So you may need to lower those thresholds uh, for children due to a more dilute urine. So kids, by definition, often have a much more dilute urine. And typically, when we're looking at urine osmolality, is often it will re reach adult concentrations by the age of two. Your 16-year-old will be an adult uh, in terms of the urine osmolality. But if you're doing a urine uh, drug testing in a child who's a one, then it's possible that uh, you're not going to be able to test. There's going to be different uh, cutoff concentrations. So this is really where you need to talk to your lab or you need to talk to a pediatrician who has an understanding of this. The reason why the thresholds are a little bit higher in the workplace is that you're trying to minimize these false positive test results. Whereas in medical practice, we're looking more at medical adherence because these are such high-risk medications, and they are high-risk medications in the workplace as well. Don't get me wrong. It's really a challenging, especially because of this lack of sensitivity in these testing. So the important thing, as we said, is that a negative test does not mean the substance is not there. It's just that it's not in a high enough concentration. And there's lots of reasons why that, why that might be happening. It might happen because of metabolism. It may be happening because of the time of day when the substance was taken. There's lots of different factors. When we think about cross-reactivity, and this is really where your screening test is going to detect 
whether or not the substance is in there. And the way to think about this is almost like a lock and key technology. So we talked about the fact that the immunoassay uses antibodies. So the lock would be the antibody and the key would actually be the drug or the substance. So if you look at something, so if you've got a, a lock, which is a standard lock, there may be different types of drugs or substances that are actually going to be able to adhere to that lock or be able to fit into that lock space. So if you look at something like an opioid, when we look at cross-reactivity, while there's lots of different things that can give a positive opiate screen, so something like verapamil or diphenylhydramine or poppy seeds would be the most common thing that we see sometimes on our bagels. If the person is eating enough of it, it can actually give you a positive opiate screen. So that key that's going to fit into that lock has a distinct shape that can fit the lock of that antibody. But there are many drugs that have very similar kinds of shapes. Um, so we have to be very, very careful. So that's one of the reasons with cross-reactivity. So when you do get that cross-reactivity, so if you get that key fitting into that lock, what it does, it changes the color of the immunoassay. So the darker the color, the more the drug is present. It's a little bit different than a urine drug, or sorry, a pregnancy test, meaning that to see a positive is that usually you get two lines that are going to be detected, two color lines. But in the urine drug screening, it's only one line that you're going to see. So the positive would be the C, and usually it's going to be dark. So where you're going to see negative is if you're not seeing that dark color because it's an indeterminate testing, is that you have to be very careful how to interpret that. So what you want to see for a positive test is one dark colored line that usually fits into the confirmatory uh, area or the C. So this cross-reactivity, as we mentioned, so there are many, many different substances or many different um, uh, keys that can fit into that lock. So we talked about uh, amphetamines. So amphetamine testing is just really challenging because there are many, many keys that can fit into that lock. So other types of substances that can actually give you a positive amphetamine include something as simple as Vicks inhaler. So we need to know if the patient is using a VIX inhaler. Are they using any decongestants or ephedrine? These are just some. And then there are some Parkinson medications that can also give you this positive amphetamine screen. It also buprenorphine or Welbutrin can do this as well. When we look at uh, PCP in that initial immunoassay, things like tramadol or ketamine can actually give you a positive test. So the key or the shape of tramadol ketamine can actually fit into the lock of or the antibody um, that is used to test for um, PCP. Other things that can do that are dexamethorphan, diphenylhydramine, or Benadryl. So we need to be very much aware of that. So it is a lock and key technology. It has high sensitivity, so it picks up lots of things, but it's not specific to what it's picking up. And uh, so it's really important to know that there are limitations. So what we have in our emergency room that helps us, but I'm sure there are different tools out there. Just thinking of an app would be very easy to develop around this, and I'm sure it's out there. So if anybody knows of an app that can be used for urine drug screening, so the immunoassay that is easy to use in clinical practice, uh, just, just send me a, an email, just send me a text uh, or a, a note to our paintalk.ca, and we can share it with our listeners. But there are many, so we keep a um, uh, chart that shows us what kinds of substances can actually cause a positive urine drug screen. 
Um, and because I think it's really important that people uh, know. So th- something like cannabinoids, we know that very rarely NSAIDs can do this. Also, we know that Pantaloc can do this, so the protein pump inhibitors. It seems to be the only PPI that will do this. Tricyclic antidepressants, if you're testing for a tricyclic, you know, Seroquel will give you a positive. So there's a Flexeril will give you a positive. Um, so diphenylhydramine will give you a positive in your urine drug screening. Just, just know how to get the information and always make sure when you're doing that urine drug screening, that immunoassay, that you're checking with these charts that are pretty standard and easy to get out there. Now we're going to get into detection time. So detection time is really a window, and we sort of mentioned that as uh, early in some of the uh, some of the uh, talks that we were were looking at when we were talking about this the last time. And it really is the amount of time a drug or a substance can be detected in the urine and still produces a positive results. So in order to evaluate detection time, you need to know what you need to know about the drug, so the drug characteristics, and you also need patient factors that you have to consider. So drug characteristics that we need to consider are the the half-life of the medication. What are the metabolites of the medication? How does the drug interact with other medications that the patient is using? How is the patient dosing this medication? And has the patient been using this medication for a long time, or is it something that they just started using? So is it a chronic use of the medication, or is it something acute? And when do they last ingest that medication? If we look at patient factors, we need to look at things like the age of the patient, you know, what is the size of that patient? What is the pH of that urine? How concentrated is that urine? And more importantly, what is the patient's renal function and liver function? So I see this over and over again, especially in elderly who get changes in their renal function and their liver function as they get older for a number of reasons. And there are no significant adjustments made in the medications that they're taking, especially around some of these sedative medications. And what happens is they start to accumulate in the patient's system. So often gives some complications related to that pharmacology. So elderly in particular, especially if we're seeing changes in the renal or the liver uh, overall function and ability to clear metabolites or to break down metabolites, need to have medications adjusted often through the trajectory of their disease. So we need to be paying attention to those things. There are also some wonderful charts out there that can kind of give us a ballpark about how long uh, often these substances can be detected. And just to give you an idea of how confusing it can be is when you think about something like cannabis. So cannabis, if somebody's just using it one time, it, because it's very lipophilic, uh, it can stay around probably for about three days. But if you're a long-term heavy user, it can stay in your urine for a few months because it gets sucked right into that uh, lipophilic tissue and then slowly gets released. If you're a moderate user, you know, you use cannabis four times a week, um, it's going to probably stay in there about a week at a time. And all different types of substances. So if I look at opioid analgesics, you know, there can be different detection times, whether it's short acting, whether it's long acting. So, you know, morphine can stay in the urine in a short acting form between 48 and 72 hours. If you're looking at something like uh, methadone, it can stay in there for three days. Uh, if you're looking at something like codeine, it's about 48 hours. Or something like heroin can be 48 hours. But it will vary on all those different factors that we talked about. So if you find a positive or a result that you didn't expect, so whether or not the urine, so if you've got somebody on a very large amount um, or you're seeing somebody with a very large amount, say of a benzodiazepine, uh, and we'll use Valium, and that urine drug screening is actually not detecting any benzodiazepine in that patient's urine. So first thing I want to do is look at, okay, what is the threshold that they're using? So is it a really high threshold? 
And should I be seeing uh, uh, Valium, uh, a benzodiazepine positive screen in that urine? And so this is sort of how you, t you step back. So you also want to frame that conversation with that patient, how that's going to go. It's important to remember to pause and step back because that screening test, that immunoassay, is not always an accurate result. Before you actually go to the bedside or have that conversation with patient, you need to make sure that you're framing that conversation in a way that is not finger-pointing, that is not going to actually affect that, that relationship that you have with that patient, that trust. So, so often, you often hear of scenarios where clinicians react that the test is definitive. It's not, especially the screening test. So what do you do if the urine drug test is negative for the prescribed opiate that you're giving the patient? So this is really could be very much a false negative test. So the threshold is not high enough to detect the, the opioid that the patient is on, or the patient is not taking it. Or it's possible that the patient is diverting it. So what do you do? You need to come back again to your test. You need to understand what your threshold is in that test and what it can actually test for. So if you're using, if that patient is using an opioid such as oxycodone, which is a semi-synthetic opioid, it may not be enough of that drug in the urine to test for a positive test. So any urine that uh, you're testing for, for a prescribed opioid, um, you may, may need to send that patient off, uh, urines off for uh, gas chromatography or mass spectrometry, or you could also do a pill count. We're going to talk a little bit about metabolites and opiates as we go along here. So, and if that urine drug test is positive for a non-prescribed opiate or benzodiazepine, it's the same principles. It's possible that you're looking at a prodrug. So if this is codeine or tramadol, now tramadol should not show up in an immunoassay because it is a synthetic opioid, but codeine will. Morphine is a metabolite of the codeine. Uh, so it could be a very false positive result. Uh, it could be double doctoring. Uh, it could also be an illicit supply. So what you need to do with the same principles about keeping patients safe and that's the pill count, you know, doing more urine drug screening on that patient and also limiting the quantity of pills for that patient. What if you see a urine drug screening that's positive for illicit drug and in particular something like cocaine? And we need to recognize that cocaine is usually our urine drug screening is testing for the metabolite of cocaine. So it's really unusual to see it be a false negative, but it can be a false negative. So it is possible that it is a false positive. And it, there could be some metabolites that are that are sort of in the cross-reactivity, but it's really unusual with cocaine. It's also possible that the patient may be an occasional user or is actually struggling with uh, an illicit substance like cocaine. So what you're going to do is manage that risk again. So urine drug screening, pill counts, and you're going to have that conversation with patient, offer them treatment, and also make sure that if they're on other high-risk pharmacology, that you're limiting the quantity of pills or substances that they have so that you can minimize the risk of them diverting into the illicit marketplace in order to get the substance that they're struggling with, like cocaine. False positives are fairly common because of that high sensitivity and low specificity. They tend to be more common with many different drugs and substances, with the exception of cocaine. So cocaine is a very... Uh, interesting uh, substance, and it's unusual to see a false positive, but it can happen. False negatives, often because of that cross-reactivity that we talked about with the antibody and all those other drugs and substances that are out there, as well as um, the cutoff concentrations, is it too low or too high, and also the time between ingestion.
let's get into the specifics. We sort of mentioned a few things there, but we need to get into some details. And we're going to start uh, with opioids because that is the most common thing. So the first thing we're going to look at is the nomenclature. So you often hear opioid, opiate. So what's the difference? So when we're using the term opiate, so O-P-I-A-T-E, it's usually um, trying to look at substances that are derived directly from the opium or the poppy. And morphine and codeine are the most common things. So heroin, which often gets included in that, is actually metabolized to morphine. So it's not directly from the, it's coming down to drive to morphine. But by itself, it's obviously uh, an important substance that is synthetic, that is out there. So opioid is a general term. It describes all compounds that work at the opiate receptor, at the mu receptor, in the central nervous system as well as in the peripheral nervous system. So it will detect semi-synthetics and synthetics. So it's applying to everything. So whereas opiate is not looking at semi-synthetics and synthetics. So opiates themselves work at the receptor that we talked about, the mu receptor, and they're often prescribed for different reasons. They're prescribed for pain medication, but also they are used in chronic conditions like chronic coughing, especially in our palliative care population. So it helps to suppress the cough. And for some patients, it can be used to control diarrhea. Now, you don't see it used as much in those clinical settings, but uh, many, many years ago, it was very common to see it used in that way. When we look at an opiate panel, so we're looking still at the immunoassay. So what can the opiate panel immunoassay detect? Primarily, it's looking at naturally occurring opium alkaloids. So this is the codeine, the morphine, opium. So it can detect immunoassays depending on those thresholds. If that patient is on codeine, it will test positive for morphine. Rarely are we actually testing for codeine. So a positive morphine means that the patient is using either morphine, using codeine, or the other thing to consider is that over-the-counter codeine preparations like Tylenol number 1 or some of the cough medications, very low dose of, of uh, codeine that are in these medications that people can get over-the-counter. Semi-synthetic opiates include hydromorphone, oxycodone, heroin, buprenorphine. They generally are not detected on the immunoassay in the opiate panel, but there is some exceptions. So patients who are using chronic morphine therapy can give a positive hydromorphone, but that hydromorphone should not give a positive morphine. And what I mean by that is if that patient is being prescribed hydromorphone, you should not see a positive morphine in their urine uh, immunoassay, although it can happen the other way. So if they're being prescribed morphine, you can, and these are chronic morphine users, is they can have a positive hydromorphone immunoassay. High-dose oxycodone as well can trigger a positive opiate immunoassay. It's really unusual to see that. It's usually very, very high dosing. Wasn't able to actually find the threshold dosing that that could be, but it's something to consider. Synthetic opioids like meperidine, which is Demerol, methadone, fentanyl, tramadol, cannot be detected by the immunoassay unless you have a very specific immunoassay that is de designed to detect those substances. So, uh, so fentanyl would be very separate from its own. Now, in the chromatography or the confirmatory testing is that it will test for these substances, and it will actually give you the amount that they're testing for, and it will name these substances. So that's why it's so much more helpful in these synthetic uh, opiates. Most conventional immunoassays use morphine as a single calibrator drug to set that threshold. So morphine is a really important point. 
that most of these uh, immunoassays are using to look at um, other types of opiates. So, so cross-reactivity with morphine and other opioids is very, very low. So the risk of false negative is actually very low. But as we mentioned, that morphine can metabolize to hydromorphone in chronic morphine dosing. So in those hydromorphone patients, it should not be positive for morphine, but it can be positive from morphine to hydromorph, but it shouldn't be positive from hydromorph to morphine. So in these patients where it's really complicated, you need more advanced uh, immunoassays that are very specific, and you also need chromatography. So things like tramadol, things like fentanyl, methadone need an advanced immunoassay that is specialized to pick up that substance, or you need chromatography. Drugs that are metabolized to morphine include opium and codeine, codeine through the CYPD26 system. So not everybody has that enzyme. So most of these patients may not even detect for morphine. So if they're not a metabolizer, their codeine probably will not show up as morphine. And you're not going to know that. And this is one of the challenges that Dr. Gerling talked about with tramadol, is you don't know how much of the prodrug they're actually getting. So how much of the opioid are they actually getting? Very difficult to know for sure. So heroin goes through one step. It actually gets metabolized to 6-monoacetate morphine and then becomes positive for morphine. So morphine in very high doses in chronic dosing can metabolize to hydromorphone, but it can't happen the other way. Other things that uh, we can look at around the opiate screening is really around that semi-synthetic opioids. And we did talk briefly about some of the challenges with oxycodone, ch some of the challenges with hydromorphone. So in those patients, especially when I find myself just not knowing for sure, I will always either send them for chromatography, don't really say much when I do the immunoassay, and then maybe do some pill counts, add in another layer of safety for that patient. Or actually, don't even be afraid to talk to your lab that's doing the testing. They're so helpful. It's crazy how helpful they can be. But your synthetic opioids, you're not going to get those on an immunoassay. You just need to accept that. And you need to find other ways of managing the patient and managing the risk around those substances. So when we look at cannabinoids, so urine drug screening for marijuana is based on the, the, the main metabolite, which is THC. Now, we know the main metabolites are THC and CBD, but the urine drug testing is really, or screening is really around THC. So the immunoassay is actually very sensitive um, as a confirmatory test around cannabinoids, but the threshold testing may vary, and we talked about that earlier around employment versus medical testing. So de detection time is multifaceted, and we did talk about that in our uh, few other slides back. And it really depends on how, how much the patient is actually using, how long they've been using, what their meta metabolic rate is, and all those kinds of factors. So it is very hypo high, highly lipophilic. So it gets sucked into the brain, gets sucked into the tissue, uh, fat tissue in particular, and then it just slowly releases from that tissue. So it can be picked up for a long time. So a little pearl is that in prescription cannabinoids like Sesamet or Nabilon, um, your urine drug testing is not going to be positive for cannabis because it is synthetic. Uh, however, Stativex or Dronibinol, sorry, I'm not saying that right, uh, it will be uh, positive because it is based on plant. Uh, so that Stativex uh, should, should show positive in their urine, depending on the threshold. Um, and we did talk about some of the medicines that will cross-react with, uh, with uh, cannabis. So false positives, kind of interesting with cannabis, and it comes back to who you're testing. So there have been some testing done on newborns. And as we talked about earlier, you need to be careful of the thresholds that you're using. Kids uh, tend to have more dilute urine, 
But what one study found is that the types of uh, wipes that were used to clean kids could actually cross-react with the uh, immunoassay for cannabinoids. So even though cannabinoids were showing up in these newborns' urine, the kids were not actually on newborns. It was actually the baby wipes that were contributing to that. So you just need to be sure why you're testing, what you're going to do with that information, what your thresholds are, and make sure that you have the right test for that particular person. And in this case, it was newborns. What about, uh, this comes up all the time, can secondhand exposure result in positive testing? And I think most of us can go back to the Olympic snowboarder from BC, Ross Ribigalati, uh, who uh, tested positive and actually lost his Olympic medal. Uh, he now, just for interest, is actually a founder of a CBD production company that actually distributes um, CBD products. And so what, what we actually understood is that this could not happen. You could not get a positive uh, urine drug screening uh, from secondhand cannabis. Now, most of the studies were done in the early 80s. And for most of us who've been around long enough, the potency of cannabis was not what we're seeing today, which is about 24, 26, or even higher if the person is using something called shatter, which we've talked about in a previous podcast, is that the potency was around 3%. So that secondhand uh, exposure did not result in a positive uh, urine drug screening. But now that the, the potency is higher, there's actually been some other studies and uh, by Cohn et al. that looked at passive inhalation. And the key really is where is the cannabis being smoked um, or vaped? Um, and does that room have ventilation? Because if there is no ventilation, most of these tests were negative. They did not show that uh, someone who was exposed to secondhand cannabis would show a positive uh, urine drug screen. However, if the ex ventilation in that space was not good, then they could get a positive urine drug screen. So that's what's really important is that, is that space ventilated or not? Now, as the potency of cannabis goes up higher and higher, which I expect it will, because the plant is being changed and adapted, will this actually change? And I think we have to be aware that this is possible, that secondhand uh, exposure can result in a positive test. And that scares the bejesus out of me when I think about kids that are exposed to this. And I look at brain development, I look at lungs, I look at all the other things that kids are going to be so much more susceptible to. And we can kind of think of secondhand smoke as the same idea. So we need to be aware that it is quite possible. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stop there because that's a lot of information. And next week, what we're going to do is get into some benzodiazepine monitoring because that's also a very contentious area. It also, we're going to get into chromatography and hopefully finish up the podcast uh, by then. But what I want to leave you with, which is so important, is that remember that urine drug screening is done for the patient. It's not done to the patient. So this is really how we're going to get some information, be able to manage risk with that patient, and be able to keep them and the community safe. So we'll stop there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.